But it is, a, it is a joy to get back to our text. Let me just read, starting in verse 13 through 25, what Paul has stated here. It says this, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This has been a passage which has been turned to throughout church history and has been used to defend one of two views. We have been working our way through this and understand there are one of two ways that we could take this. Either this passage is teaching us how far a Christian can fall and still be a Christian, or this passage is teaching us how righteous an unbeliever can be and still be an unbeliever. Those are basically, no matter what view you take, you fall into one of those two categories. The question for us is, what is this teaching? We learn a lot about ourselves as we begin to wrestle through this, a lot about man, his nature, a lot about us as Bible students as we come to the Scriptures. Because when you come to a difficult passage, it's easy for us to turn back to what we know to what is comfortable, to what we understand, and try to use that as a grid to understand the text before us. Sometimes that helps us. Sometimes that gets us into trouble. And I think that is why we have so many different views when it comes to this text. It's a difficult text. Even as I read it this morning, I'm sure you were thinking, how in the world is he going to unravel this mess? Well, by the Spirit of God, we pray we'll do that this morning just a little bit more. We won't be done yet, but we will get a little closer into this marvelous study. 
We've been looking, as we worked our way through this study, all the details. We've looked at the literary context. We started in chapter 6 through chapter 8. Paul is on a flow of thought here. We've seen the grammatical flow, and we've looked at those details. I won't repeat it lest we never finish this study. We then move from that to the immediate context of Romans chapter 7, and this is important for us grammatically as we see what Paul is doing here. Paul is defending his message. He is defending the gospel. And as he is preaching the gospel and he is defending the work of the gospel as he has been doing from chapter 3 and verse 21 and following, he is defending the gospel of God and its teaching. He anticipates a question, a, a resistance on behalf of a Jewish audience. And so he raises three questions Romans chapter 7 and verse 1, he says the first question, Do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Strong out the rule of the law, the work of the law. Don't you recognize that the law is over those who are living? Jump down to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? The opposition would be that Ultimately, because we who have embraced the gospel, we who are in Christ, we who have been born of God, we who are now followers of Jesus Christ are no longer under the rule of law, we're under the rule of grace. And the question might come up then, does that mean that the law is sin? The law is the problem? And then he brings out one more question in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? The idea is that if you were a believer of the old covenant, that you had embraced the Jewish traditions, and now you're hearing the gospel from Paul, the temptation would be to believe that, Paul, you're saying that there's something wrong with the law. You're saying that the law is the problem. You are saying because people sin and those who are under the law sin, the law must be the problem. And Paul is refuting that. As I said, three different questions here, all related to the topic of the law, all related to the old covenant value system, all related to the Jews. He is bringing out to them answers to help them think carefully about the gospel. So in this, again, that sets up our context here. Verse 13 is the question and the answer. Verse 14 through 25 is the illustration to the answer. We're not moving to a new thought in verse 14 through 25. We're now giving an illustration and that further explanation to the answer he gives in verse 13. It's important to see that textual detail, because if you think he's moving on to a new topic, he's addressing a new audience, you must then answer how that is. Because he's been typically raising a question, giving an answer. Raise a question, give an answer. Third time, raise a question, give an answer. And if he's going to move to a whole new thought altogether, you've got to answer both the style, why he did something different, and then you would also have to answer how it is that he did that. Because, again, we're just looking at the details here. Paul is giving an answer to a particular audience. Now, as we work, that is just the kind of flow of thought, the literary flow of thought. And over the last few weeks, we also covered some other details. 
There are a couple of theological questions because no matter how you look at this particular text, if you look at it through the lens of Paul being a believer or you look at it through the lens of Paul being an unbeliever, there are certain challenging questions that come out when you do that. For example, if you look at it as Paul being an unbeliever uh, and reflecting an unbelieving state, we have to answer the question, what is it that the natural man can do? The man who hasn't been born of God, the one who hasn't been regenerated, the one who has, is not a believer in the new covenant, what is the natural man able to do? And we saw that through Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We saw that the natural man has the law of God written on his heart, so he can instinctively do the things of the law. Even the natural man is kind of like a broken clock. He can get it right every once in a while. Even if he isn't purposely doing it, he, he knows how to respond in a loving way because the law is written on his heart. I like to see that around you know, times of natural disaster or difficulties. Everyone is compelled in a moment of a natural disaster to reach out and act in a humanitarian way to try to care for somebody. Even if they hadn't been regenerated, they know instinctively somebody is in need, they need to be cared for, they're under distress, and so they reach out. And what do they do in that moment? They recognize right there the law of God is written on their heart. We've been created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God, and we're able to reflect the character of God. Genesis 1 tells us that. We are created in his image and able to reflect him. Even, again, as unbelievers, they have some marks of being created in the image of God. We saw that even through the first 10 chapters of of Genesis. God condemned murder because man was created in his image. Even after the fall, it didn't mar the fact that man is able to reflect God in some way. The natural man can even hear the word of God preached and even affirm that it is right, even if his heart is never changed by it. We saw that in Matthew 13. So the natural man is able to reflect some of God's grace and God's goodness Because God has made him that way. He has put it on his heart. He has made him in his image. He has even uh, worked in such a way so that the heart of man reveals that he is guilty. And then we looked at the other side of the equation. All right. The natural man is uh, able to reflect the glory of God. Well, what does it mean then to be in the flesh? And this is the last time we were together, we covered this question. What does it mean to be in the flesh? We made this distinction as we worked together. While we are in the flesh, we are not of the flesh. That little preposition is very important. To say in the flesh, we are in the flesh, what we're meaning is this. We are flesh and blood. Jesus came in the flesh. He came in a physical body. He, had, a, he was, had physical body and blood. While he was in the flesh, he was not of the flesh. To be of the flesh would be to be of the fallen nature, it would be of Adam. It would be to be in rebellion to God. So while in the flesh, the flesh itself, that is our physical body, was different from our fallen nature. We make those distinctions. They overlap a little bit, and and the terms seem to overlap, but there is a clear distinction between these two ideas. 
To be, again, of the flesh is different to be than in the flesh. And we need to make these, things, these truths distinct in our minds. The physical body is, in our minds, and our understanding, it is a neutral agent that can be directed to evil or it can be directed to righteousness. It's just thinking about the terms, you know, in the Greek, there's two distinct terms. There's the word soma, which means body, and there's the word sarx, which means flesh. And so there's this distinction between the body and the flesh. And sometimes those terms are used interchangeably. We'll see that in chapter 8, where Paul goes back and forth and uses soma and sarx interchangeably. But in this idea here is we need to understand our physical body, the body we walk around with, the body that you were attracted to when you had your spouse or chose your spouse, that physical body there is a a neutral agent which could be directed to evil or directed to righteousness. This is what Paul says back in chapter 6. Notice what he says in in chapter 6. <clears throat> particularly in verse 19. Well, actually, we can go back in verse 12 and 13 and then jump down to 19. It says in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. What is he saying here in Romans six twelve? Don't let sin reign in our physical body. Well, how did that happen? Verse 13, he describes it. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What is he recognizing? The members of your body can either be given over to sin or it can be given over to righteousness. And we who are in Christ are to give our members over to righteousness. Jump down to verse 19. He says a similar idea. It says in the middle of 19, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Meaning you used to give over to unrighteousness. Again, our members of our body, that is our inner man, that would be our mind and our heart, uh, our will, they used to be given over to unrighteousness as well as our outward parts of our body, our hands, our eyes, our ears. Those things used to be given over to evil. Now give them over to righteousness. They are a neutral agent which can be directed one way or another. But this neutral agent which can be directed one way or another is driven by our fallen nature or our redeemed nature. So this flesh, and we noticed this then, that the believer is, while he is in the flesh, he has a physical body that is to be pursuing, again, righteousness. In his former manner of life, he was of the flesh. We were all of the flesh. See, it's important to make these distinctions. Because if we don't make this distinction, we are going to condemn both the Son of God who came in a physical body, and we will then also create a hopelessness and despair for any of us because we are all of the flesh physically, meaning we are all in physical bodies. And if we are all in physical bodies, then we would be hopeless and despairing, unable to overcome. 
if it is that this physical body is corrupt, but our immaterial parts of our being are not corrupted. And by the way, that was the error of Gnosticism. That was the error the first century church faced that made a distinction between the physical and the immaterial. Instead of the physical world, only the physical world is corrupted, uh, but the immaterial world is unstained by sin. So we look through that and we recognize this then. While the believer is in the flesh, the believer is not of the flesh. The natural man, the man born in Adam, the one who is born under Adam, is both in the flesh and of the flesh. He is controlled by his fallen nature, bent against God. We, as Romans chapter 6 indicates, have been set free from that. Set free from the slavery of sin. We have, as Romans 6 and verse 2 says, How shall we who die to sin still live in it? We have died to that old man. We have died to those former practices. We have died to that life. That's what he says again in chapter 7, verses 2 through uh, 6 there, that we are dead to the law. Our old man has died away. We are new. This description then is that, all right, here's what we recognize. Where is the source of sin The source of sin is this fallen human nature, this uh, which sin dwells in our fallen flesh, our fleshly nature. We were in rebellion, hostile to God. So that sets us up till we come to this point. Then what is happening here in Romans 7, verses 13 through 25? And what I've been seeking to demonstrate to you is that this is Paul's defense of the gospel to the Old Testament believer, or the believer in the Old Testament, let's put it that way, the one who believed the Old Covenant message, the one who is in uh, rebellion to God, who is living under the law but hasn't been born of God yet. Let me show you that this has been Paul's defense Turn over to Romans chapter 1. His whole work up to this point has been to preach the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel that would spread to all. And this gospel has been proclaimed around the the world. And he is saying, he says ultimately here in verse 15 of chapter 1, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to be there. I want to preach the gospel to you. And then he goes on and defends it, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul, at this point, is defending the gospel. So the book of Romans, from basically from chapter 1 through chapter 11, is the defense of the gospel and its work among the Jew and the Gentile. That he's going to prove that God's gospel is the gospel in which the Jew ought to believe just like the Gentile ought to believe. 
It's rather interesting when you get to chapter 3, 4, and 5, when he is defending the doctrinal basis of the gospel. Do you remember where he quotes? He quotes from Moses, and he goes back to the book of Genesis, and he goes back to Abraham and demonstrates that Abraham was justified by faith. Then he quotes the Psalms, and he goes to David and demonstrates that David was anticipated being credited by God as righteous. And then he also goes to the prophets, he goes to Habakkuk, and he quotes from Habakkuk demonstrating this. So he quotes from the, the law, he quotes from the writings, and he quotes from the prophets. That is a Jewish defense of the gospel. He has the Jews in mind as he is writing this. Even we Gentiles who come along and we get to embrace the riches of this gospel message, Paul is showing to the Jew the depths of this message. This message which Paul is preaching is not something new. It isn't something that has not been talked about. This is something that God has been proclaiming from Abraham. He's been making known. But along the way, as we noticed, back in chapter 5 and verse 20, when Paul is defending the gospel of God and he's defending the righteousness of God, he then brings out this problem, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why was the law given? The law was given to stir up sin, to increase it. Grace was given to cover it, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So while the law came and the law stirred up sin, grace came along and grace covered sin. Which means it created this problem. And there's the one more wrinkle I want to give you before we jump into this text. One more background that we must look into, and that is the historical background. There is a historical background. Even as Paul is defending his gospel, it's important to understand the group that he is defending the gospel to. He is defending it to a group of Jews who grew up under the law, under the Old Covenant. You see, at the time of the writing of Romans, the time of the early church here, the time of the apostles was a time of transition, a time of moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, a time in which God's work was fulfilled and being demonstrated in fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can even see it in the apostles. When the apostles, through the gospels, were walking with Jesus Christ at that time, they were old covenant believers. They were religious. They were practicers of the Jewish customs. Read through the gospel of John and just look at the number of times in John's account where they go for the Passover and they go back to Jerusalem and they have the Passover together. They are practicing the old covenant traditions, the festivals, the feasts. They are old covenant believers to the time Christ dies. And then he's resurrected. And then he comes to them. And then he ascends. And then what happens? Pentecost comes. 
and the Spirit of God is poured out, and the new covenant is inaugurated, and from that time forward, the work of God is now pointed to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, the believer in the old covenant was looking forward to that day of redemption when the righteousness of God would be credited to them. They didn't know when. They didn't know who. They knew that it was coming. They had the promises, but they were living in anticipation. Every new covenant believer, you and I now, we look back. We're not waiting for the redemption to come. We know what has come. It's come through the Lord Jesus Christ who bore upon himself our penalty, our sins, our transgressions, our rebellion was placed on him and he took it to the cross and he bore that wrath of God and he bore our sins so that we could have his righteousness credited to to us. So that the old covenant believer looked forward to the righteousness of God, the new covenant believer looks back to when it was fulfilled in Christ. And right here in Romans, in this time period, when Romans was written, was that transition period. That time in which the old was done away and behold, new things had come. Is that time in which you were living out, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul says that the veil was ripped and torn in two, and he took the two men and made them into one, Jew and Gentile made into one. He's reconciled God and man together. All of this is described as Paul saying that he is, again, in Ephesians 2 and 3, overwhelmed that he gets to be a minister of this new covenant and and proclaim the mystery of the church. All of that is happening right here. And here in Romans 7, that is the backdrop to which this message is given. And if we miss that, we will fall into the temptation of taking ourselves in the present church today, in the 20th or 21st century, and force ourselves right back in there and think it's about us when the reality is here, this is about the gospel and its spread among the Jewish nation. What would they have struggled with? Well, that's exactly what Paul addresses here, chapter 7. The very thing that they would struggle with when hearing a new message I mean, think about this. When, when we think about something new, we always think better, right? We got a new car. It's a better car. Yeah, the other one works. It gets me around, but I have a new car, so it must be better. Something discredited about the old car because this one is better. It's new. Same idea in the covenant message here. We have the new covenant. That means your old covenant, there was something wrong. That's what you're saying, Paul. You're saying the old covenant, there's something wrong in that old covenant. Paul's going to say, ah, wait, not so fast. Problem isn't with God. It wasn't with God's work. It wasn't with his law. Problem isn't with his message. Problem is in the heart of man. In comes Romans 7 to demonstrate that. Romans 7.13, the question that came out, therefore did that which is good... That is the law. Did the law become a cause of death for me? May it never be. See, Paul is going to demonstrate here the whole problem of man's personal struggle is his own heart. I believe particularly here, because of back in verse 1 when Paul says, 
Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He is speaking to Jews. He is speaking to those believers in the Old Covenant, those who would have held to the festivals and feasts and the Old Covenant practices as their basis for entering into eternal life. And he is saying, if you are anticipating the righteousness of God, then you need to embrace the gospel of God. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is satisfied. And they would have been hostile to his message. They would have been resistant to his message because it would have been a slap in the face to what they believed. It would have been in something in their mind would have thought, then you're discrediting the work of God in the gospel. You're discrediting it. And Paul's saying, actually, on the contrary, I'm saying you are the problem, not God. You, the believer in the old covenant, you, the natural man, is the problem, not the work of God. To which then Paul defends that here. That's where we're at. Now that's all catching us up. Now we can actually make some progress here, right? So what we've seen, point number one, we saw this already. Verse 14, the problem itself. What's the problem? Verse 14 says, For we know the law. And again, the for there, Gar, is showing a connection to the question just asked in verse 13. This is explanation. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Here's the problem. The law is perfect. The law is holy, just, and good. The law is faultless. Basically, everything that God is, the law is. It's perfect. It's righteous. It is good. It is just. It is holy. It is immutable because God himself is all those things. But contrast that, I, on the other hand, am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Statement literally reads like this, I am fleshly. Present tense, I am in a continual state of being fleshly, sold into this. The New American translates it with that preposition of there, but it is literally just reads, I am fleshly. How did you get in this place having been sold into bondage to sin? With that little secondary statement there, I think he is then proving to us the description of our nature. The natural man in his natural state is in a state of having been sold into bondage to sin. Speaks of here in this text, speaks of something that happened to us that has continual effects into today. That's the problem of man. This is why, again, the believer in the old covenant, the Jew who lived under the old covenant system, was hopeless, powerless, because he was of the flesh, sold into bondage, and he was under the perfect law of God. That was his state. Now, this leads us to point number two that he makes here, and now he proves the problem. Verse 15 through verse 20 is Paul's proof of that problem that the man's the problem, not the law. And he gives six statements. Each verse is a statement. Verse 15 through 20, he gives a series of statements. Every one of those verses starts with a conjunction, for or but, he is building a case. Every one, he makes a statement. So we could break it off to six different statements, but actually I found out that they paired up these statements. So he gives three ideas here. Let me just walk you through this. To prove his problem, he proves it with three ideas. Here's the first idea. 
The first proof that the problem is with man and not with the law of God is this. Man's inability to move from acknowledgement to practice. The first proof that the Old Testament follower was struggling and unable to keep the law of God was because he was unable to move from acknowledgement to practice. Notice verse 15 and verse 18. He's parallel together. Here's what he says. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Jump down to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Notice this problem here. There's an acknowledgement. There's a wishing. There's a desiring, but no ability to fulfill. Terms, again, this is significant for us to recognize that the present tense verbs here describing regular continual action. This isn't a one-time deal like, hey, today I'm having a good day, but, you know, a bad day, but tomorrow I'm going to have a good day and I'll, I'll start practicing. No, this is the present, regular, continuing state. What is the state described here? It's the continual state of desiring what's right, but not doing, not following through, not being able to complete it. That's the state of the natural man. The natural man is in this present stage where they does evil regularly, practices it regularly. Verse Again, verse 15 and 18 regularly says, I am doing, present tense, I am regularly, continually, presently, right now, doing the things I hate. No broken pattern of it, it's just the regular practice of it. Back to verse 18 again. But the doing of the good is not. I'm not doing good. I'm not walking uprightly. That's the state of the natural man. By the way, again, somebody asked, why does Paul use the first person? Why does he use I? Why does he say I? Well, first of all, he's relating to his audience. And notice how effective a tool that is. Because all of us are, relate to it. As he says I, no matter what position you take, you think he's speaking right at me. That is his tool here. He is speaking in such a way, identifying with his audience to drive home the point. It takes away the offense. Speak in the second person, start saying you, you do this. Well, now it becomes offensive and direct and confrontational. When he focuses upon himself and he puts himself there as the object, it now takes away that offense and we say, yeah, I relate to that. And of course, if I had, again, no matter what view you take, you're thinking Paul speaking directly at me. Look, he uses the eye. It's a rhetorical device in which he has done to get to the point of this. What's the point? The point is this. Man's is the problem, not the law. The law isn't evil. The law is, as verse 12 of chapter 7 indicates, holy, just, and good. It is righteous. We are the problem. The heart of the natural man is the problem because the heart of the natural man is stuck in this position. It acknowledges good but doesn't perform. Wishes, and you see that word used there in verse 18, for the wishing is present there. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, doing the very thing I hate. Verse 15, 
There is this desiring, anticipation, but no ability to follow through. Again, notice verse 18 there when he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. What is that little statement there? What is he referring to in my flesh? And again, if we say flesh means only the physical body, well, we're in trouble here because then everyone has a physical body, even including the Lord Jesus Christ. And if nothing good dwells in our physical flesh, then even the Lord himself is condemned. In the flesh here means in my humanness, in my natural man, in my being that was in Adam. There is nothing good in my humanness. You see how far the natural man can go. He can be informed with the law of God. He can be informed with the truth. And yet, he never moves from acknowledgement to practice. Always stuck in the state of affirming truth, affirming what is right, but never follows through. That proves, again, the problem is not with the law of God. It's with the heart of man. He is in rebellion. He is in opposition. The law is good. It's so good that even the unrighteous can affirm that it's a good thing to do, the law. That's why, again, I go back to the illustration of a natural disaster. When a natural disaster hits and there's a plea for funds to give to help, even the natural person knows this is a good thing for me to do and is affirmed by others as that's a good thing so that they know the right thing. The heart is climbed against leads to the second truth here that is demonstrated. It's this. The second proof that the problem is with man and not the law is that man is measured by what he does rather than what he wishes. Notice verses 16 and 19. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. In verse 19, for the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Here's the proof, the second proof that the problem is with man and not the law, is that man wants to be measured by what he wishes, his good intentions, rather than the actual practice of the law. This is the state of man. Desiring, look, I had good intentions. I, I wanted to do what was right. I just couldn't follow through on it. Measure me by my good intentions here. Struck, struck me recently this idea of the heart of man so filled with evil, but wanting to be measured by their good intentions. I read an article of a guy who had murdered his girlfriend, and they asked him, why did you do this? And his answer was, well, I loved her. You, you want to get off as if that, that wasn't a bad thing to do because you had this love. You just want to be measured by your good intentions, not by your actions. That's the natural heart of man, filled with such corruption that he wants to be measured by what he wishes to do, but cannot follow through on it. I, but if I do the very thing I do not wish, I agree with the law. Confessing that is good. For the good that I wish, I do not do. I know what is right. I know what is good. I ought to be doing it, but I can't follow through on it. 
And that's where the natural man stops with wish and intention and desire, but never follows through to practice. I know this is, for us, sometimes a struggle as well. Man, I know there are those days. You probably had a day like this, like I have, where I woke up one morning like, today is the day I am not going to sin. Today is it. I'm not going to sin in my mind. I'm not going to sin in my motives. I'm not going to sin in my emotions. I'm not going to sin in my actions. My wife is going to think she married Jesus by the time I finish this day. I got it. This is it. You know, my kids are going to think, Dad, you're the best dad ever. You never sin. I'm going to say, you're right. Not in pride, though. I'm going to do that in, you know, genuine love. This is going to be the day. And then you get out there and you get stuck in traffic for a moment and you spill a little coffee on your shirt and it's all gone. You're angry and you're, you know, kicking the cat and everything else and yelling at every little thing. You think, how did I get from this state of good intentions when I started to falling here? And you and I get in that state and we think, Paul, you're just talking right about me here. And I would say this, that yeah, he speaks of us when this, when we go back to fighting spiritual battles in the flesh rather than in the spirit. When you and I go back and walk in the old man and put on the old man and dwell in the old man and the old practices and the old ways, yes, that's exactly us right here, having no power, wishing but never fulfilling because all we're doing is putting on those old practices and we're not turning to the graces given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in these good intentions, good desires, but never follow through because we're not walking in faith. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're not walking according to the Word of God. We go, go back to that old man. And we practice the old practices. That's why it hits so close to home because this is what the natural man can do and he can do no other. Oftentimes, you and I forget to put on our spiritual armor and we walk in the old man again. The point is this. Let's not make excuses for that. Let's not go back to that old practice. Let's go back to the graces that are found in Christ Jesus. Let's, as Romans 8 and verse 12 through 14 says, what, let us by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because that's who we are in Christ. The problem isn't the law. The problem isn't the work of God. The problem is in man's heart. A man, in his natural state, wants to be measured by what he wishes rather than what he does. Because it's pretty convenient. It's easy for me to wish to be great at something. It's hard to do it. I mean, I may wish to be a great football player. The doing of it is completely different. Same kind of thing here in regards to the pursuit of righteousness we wish and desire to do good things, but the believer in Jesus Christ is able through the power of the Spirit to do that. Now one more. He gives us here a third. If I can find it. Yes, here it is. The third proof that the problem is not the law, but rather sin in the heart of man is that sin dwells in the fallen person. Notice verse 17 and 20. Paul brings this out again. So no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
Verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This here, Paul personifies sin as an entity, as a being, this sin dwelling within us. Well, what is this? This is sin dwelling in the fallen man. The natural man, Ed Adam, was born into this world, dead in their trespasses and sin. The natural man, Ed Adam, has born into rebellion, sin rules and reigns within him. He is sin dwelling within him, and he sees it. Whenever the good law is presented, whenever that law of righteousness comes out, and the natural man wars against that righteousness, he sees that is sin dwelling within him. Warring against the things of God. Problem again, it's not the law. It's not the old covenant. It's not the work of God. It wasn't with the customs and practices. None of those things were the problem. The problem was the heart of man. That's where the problem is. So he needs help. This is again where we think this, that we are, we could feel ourselves there and we can feel the battle with sin there. We can feel the sin's presence as we resist the things of God and we can see this within us ourselves too. Sin dwelling within us and warring against the things of God. Here's the point. The Old Covenant believer was stuck there. Or put it this way. The believer in the Old Covenant was stuck there. If you're in the state where you agree the law is good and you need the law, it's holy, righteous, and just, and you thought you could keep it, you're in sin. It is in you. It is in your nature. You're stuck in this place. But the believer has been born of God. The believer, by the grace of God, has been made alive. And the believer in Jesus Christ has been rescued and now no longer as slaves of unrighteousness, but slaves of righteousness. And on top of that, the believer has the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within him to lead him unto righteousness. Here in Romans 7, verse 13 through 25, this is a description of a life of somebody who does not have the Spirit of God. And by the way, you and I feel this condition whenever we abandon the Spirit and go back to the old man. Whenever we stop walking in the Spirit and walk in the flesh, we feel this very thing right here. This sin ruling that wants to dominate us. The problem is not with God, not with his work. The problem is with man's condition. So this is Paul's defense. Kind of summarize and conclude for us, this is Paul's defense of his gospel. His gospel is the only hope for a man to deliver him from sin. The only hope is the hope found in Christ Jesus, the hope of grace found in God. Only as man on his own will desire what's right, but not be able to perform it. The man on his own will have good intentions and want his intentions to be what he's measured by, but he's going to be measured by his actions. A man in his own natural ability is only going to find within himself and his own fallen nature sin ruling and reigning within him with no power to overcome. But we, Romans 8, 1, believe and recognize there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus 
the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The old man was under the law of sin. The new man in Christ Jesus is under the law of the spirit of life. We have the life of God ruling and reigning within us. So ultimately, the battle comes down as you are working through your Christian life and you are looking through your spiritual battle. Ask yourself, how are you battling this? Are you battling against the flesh in the wisdom of the flesh and in the power of the flesh? Or are you putting it to death by the Spirit of God? Have you embraced the gospel of God and been born of God and have the grace of God ruling within you? Are you yielding yourself to the Spirit of God or do you keep running back to those spiritual battles with fleshly armaments? The believer is, again, not in Romans seven thirteen through 25. This actually is this, just the description of of a spiritually informed unbeliever who can appreciate God's ways, even know that they ought to do it, but finds no power to do it. Which, by the way, is the description of every child who grows up in a Christian home before they're converted. And is the description of everyone who has a, uh, an acknowledgement of the gospel but never believed it by faith. The kind of Bible belt, if you will. But of the believer, they have been born of God, set free from slavery to sin, free to live for God, free to live by the Spirit of God, free to live for the righteousness of God, and they delight in that righteousness. This is the gospel that Paul preached. We'll come back next week and hopefully wrap up this section and get to the good stuff when the Spirit of God is actually reigning among his people. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths and just the wisdom and insight that comes from your word in regards to your working among your people. We are thankful that as your truth shepherds our hearts, it does reveal to us both the condition of the natural heart, and we pray for any who is in the state of still being of the flesh, that they would repent and turn and call out for faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see that you would rescue. But to us who believe and who have been born of God and walk in newness of life and are now slaves of righteousness, may we understand how we battle. And when we see that immaturity and where we go back to oldness of our former manner of life, may we quickly turn from those things, turning to you, turning to your grace, delighting in your righteousness, knowing that through your spirit, you will deliver us. We're thankful for the many expressions of your grace here and even just giving us wisdom and insight from your scriptures so that we would be more skilled in walking through our daily battles. Thank you for your grace, and we're just most thankful at this moment that all of our sins have been covered by Christ, that we will not have to bear that penalty because it's already been satisfied. So may our lives just be filled with an overwhelming gratitude for all that you've accomplished. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.